following Hark the Herald Angels Sing, I kind of don't even need to preach a sermon after that. That did it all for us. All, all those stanzas are just more theology and that packed tight-knit thing than I'll probably give you in the next 35 minutes. But hopefully not, because Christmas, hopefully, is all about the magnification of Christ Jesus. Christmas is all about why do you do what you do? Why are you anticipating the parade on Christmas morning? Why do you decorate your house like a child? It is all anticipating the, and recognizing the magnification of Christ Jesus. And part of knowing Christ, part of worshiping Jesus, part of orienting your life or centering your life around him is knowing why, in fact, he fully and actually came. Why did Jesus come? That's what Christmas brings to our horizon, the question that it makes us ask. Why did Jesus come? Why did he have to come? What came with him when he came? And so Christmas, for all Christians, for all time, has been the theological announcement that God the Son did, in fact, come. He came. That's why we sing like we do. That's why we read like we do. That's why we orient all of our parties the way we do, because our Savior, God the Son, truly came. And so for the next several weeks, uh, I aim to be preaching a couple of sermons from passages that show us why Jesus said he came himself. So today, uh, we'll go to the passage where Jesus says that he came to preach, and then another passage where he preaches the good news. Next Sunday, God willing, will be Luke 5, where I have come to call sinners, not the righteous. The 18th, John 12, he came for this hour. Christmas Eve, John 12, he came as light. And then Christmas Day, finally, Matthew 20, he came as a ransom. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, meaning you don't follow the way or the words of Jesus, you recognize that you don't worship him like maybe others around you or maybe like you've heard about or maybe like you feel like you should or something, you don't, you don't follow him, you probably know that we Christians think that Jesus is not only thought of by us in a certain way, but also Jesus himself made pretty audacious, amazing, big claims about himself. It's not just that we sing songs talking about the glory of the Son coming incarnate, but also Jesus himself gives us a lot of reasons, a lot of attesting to the reality that he himself did come. Make makes some pretty audacious claims. He claimed to be and to do pretty eccentric stuff. And we think he was true in everything that he said about himself. So I want to encourage you, if you're not a believer, to just peer in with us. We're, we're peering because we want this, these things about Christ to be magnified in our, in our midst, but also I want to encourage you to join us as we look at him and, and see for yourself what he says about himself. We think he was true in everything that he said about himself, and he was righteous and holy and right and true in everything that he did. So a Christian simply follows Jesus and the way of Jesus. We worship God in Christ because of what he said and what he did. We center our lives around him. And so all of us could and should spend our lives thinking about and revolving our lives around Christ Jesus. You know that, right? That's what discipleship as a believer looks like. All of your life is in retrospect of who he is. And the great thing about Christmas is that it elevates that opportunity. It actually makes following Jesus actually normal. Like, you're the normal one if you have a Christmas tree in your house. You're the normal one if you talk about what it means for Jesus to come. You're the normal one who seems happy and joyful because your king has come for you. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a friend's house, and they'd already put up 
uh, a crafted Christmas tree with 25 you know, cards or wooden things that look like mini trees. They, they put up 25 cards on this Christmas tree, and it serves as a countdown for December 25th. You probably have something like that, especially if you have children. Ours had stuff like that. We had chocolate, though. I think there were verses tucked in, but a lot of Hershey kisses around our house. You know, you're counting down the days to Christmas. And along with this crafted tree that was put up in their house, along with it was a note listing a couple of verses to read out loud uh, every day as Christmas approaches, whether with their kids or with themselves, on each day allowing themselves to anticipate the day of Christmas. So it's a very Christian thing to do. It's a very normal thing to do to, to rehearse the, the first arrival of Jesus with anticipating regularly rehearsing the final arrival of Christ, setting a path for, for pondering Christ during the Christmas season. Now, what I aim to do today is to speak to you from the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible, I want to t- I encourage you to turn to the book of Mark chapter 1, where Jesus tells people around him, and he tells you here today that one of the reasons for him coming, uh, his literal coming down from heaven, being born, growing up, and then living, he gives an answer of one of the reasons why he came. So first, for this month in this short sermon series, sermon series, one reason why Jesus came was to preach, was to preach good news, was to be a preacher. That's why he came. No one spoke like Jesus when he did. Even in the earliest recorded words of Jesus, they were striking for everyone in their midst. You'll remember in the earlier parts of one of the Gospels where uh, Jesus' earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, um, were intending to do something and they accidentally left their child behind, they left Jesus behind in the temple. So they went looking for 12-year-old Jesus. You can imagine the anxiety that some of you might have if you're looking for a kid in the mall or a kid even at church, after church, they're running around and you just hope the doors are locked. But they finally found, found him and they cried out to him, where have you been? And they found him actually giving answers to older teachers in the temple. This is in Luke chapter 2. And he was being, Jesus was being asked questions, he was giving answers, he was being asked more questions, and it says that the people there in the temple were, the word there is astonished at not only his handling of the Bible, but also the way that he communicated what is true about God in their mind. It was only a 12-year-old kid. So even in the earliest days of Jesus, he spoke with a certain level of authority and credibility. Now I want you to look at Mark chapter 1. I want to bring your attention to just two verses before our passage. Look at verse 21. So gaze up maybe in your text. Verse 21 through 22, it says, And they went into Capernaum, And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. Another case of Jesus' amazing words. Or look even before that in verses 14 through 15. Now after John, John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel, the audacity and the clarity and the authority that Jesus has always been speaking about. And so we want to bring our attention to what Mark very quickly and simply says of why Jesus came to this earth. You can find the the movement of my message, hopefully on the back of the bulletin that you would have been given. I want us to look at the mission of Jesus, 
I want you to look at the manner of Jesus, and then finally, I want us to see what the actual message of Jesus, this person who came and preached to us is. So there are a lot of other passages that talk about Jesus coming to preach, (laughs) and I recognized last night, man, maybe some of those were actually better passages than the passage I chose today, but the text was already written. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 1, really hone in on verse, verse 38. So I want you to see what Jesus says his own mission was about. He declares that he came to preach, and how does that fit into his mission? Well, let me say up front that preaching was not the sum total of Jesus' ministry on earth. Uh, In my series over the next couple of weeks, I hope to show you five in total of the many reasons that Jesus came. So preaching isn't all that Jesus came to do. We know that, and I want you to know that I know that. So preaching isn't all, but it is very significant. And frankly, I think some of his sayings are more important than others, why he came to do certain things. I think there's somewhat of a rank that we can see these as, which feels weird to say that we might rank Jesus' words. I'm not saying you're saying that, I'm saying that, so throw me out later. But all in Christmas morning with his words from Matthew 20, where he says, I've not come to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I think that's the best reason that Jesus gives us of why he came, but you can see that almost like as an umbrella of what he aims to do by his arrival. And then there are a couple things that seem to fit under that. How does he make himself known as the one who will give him his life over for many? Well, first, I think he preaches, and that's how it fits into his mission. Mission. Nevertheless, here in Mark, Jesus went to the next town in order to preach. He was in a certain place. They wanted him to stay. People around him were asking him to stay. And he wanted to leave. He said, this is why I came out. Maybe in your passage, look there at um, verse 38. Let us go on to the next town that I might preach there also. For this is why I came out. Maybe your passage says something like, this is why I came forth. That'd be in the King James or the New King James. Or in the New American Standard, it says, this is what I came for. I want to leave. This is what I came for. The NIV says, this is why I have come. All legitimate translations of the Greek text here beside the ESV. But this is a general, I want you to think of, uh, this is a general, cosmic, (laughs) grand purpose statement of what Jesus is intending to do. This is not him merely saying, I'm leaving this place to go to this place. That's why I got up this morning. Or, this is why I'm going to the next town, because I want to do what I want to do. This is him telling you and me, this is Mark telling us why Jesus, the Son of God, came down from heaven and ministered to his people. So I want you to know that God the Father sent his Son for a particular reason, and we see Jesus bringing that reason to us. His reason was to preach to as many people as he could. Luke 4 correlates with this recording where Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Now, to show you that this theme is not only important in in this context, in Mark chapter 1, but I also want to show you that there's like this grand sweeping emphasis that is shown to us, culminating in Mark chapter 1, culminating in Luke 4, but this is something that has been building up for a long period of time. You don't have to turn there, but maybe mark down Deuteronomy chapter 18. This is where the Israelites were told that one day a prophet would come, a preacher would come, a prophet, much like Moses. But God said, you had better heed him. You better be attentive to him like you weren't Moses. 
And a prophet was a way to describe those who came after Moses, those who were given the ability and inspiration of God to speak the very things of God. You can think of God channeling his words through a very prophet to a particular group of people. There are different prophets in the Old Testament that, we are, that are very notable, people like Jeremiah or Isaiah and others like them, and they spoke of a man who would come. They would speak on the shoulders of Moses, and they would speak on the shoulders of Isaiah. They would speak on the shoulders of Ezra, and they would say, but a greater one who will come. They even called his name a teacher. Yeah, he'd sacrifice, he'd act like a king, but he would teach. Or even he'd be called a wonderful counselor. And Isaiah chapter 61 says, he'll bring good news to the poor. He'll preach liberty to the captive. He'll proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so I think surely you're familiar, especially around Christmas time, with a lot of prophetic passages um, leading you to an understanding of who Jesus is. Maybe Isaiah 53 is notably the most famous one where there's the account of a suffering servant who will come. Yes, that's completely Jesus, but also in the same almost breath of Isaiah there. In Isaiah chapter 61, he tells the people of God to anticipate that a Messiah will come and preach not just be a good example, not just lay his life down as a ransom for many, not just to show them what they ought to have known, but to tell them who he is and what they must do in his midst. I want you to turn one book over to the book of Luke. Book of Luke chapter 4, if you're not familiar, look at the big words on the top of the page and then find the big number 4 maybe in the middle of the page and then turn to the little numbers, verses 17 through 19. So little number 17, Luke chapter 4. I want you to see this as a case of Jesus showcasing himself as the one who has been prophesied about for so long. Luke chapter 4, verse 17, it says, well, I'll read up in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and, he was, it was, and it was his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Imagine him reading. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And here is where he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Luke recording for us what Jesus had done in the synagogue where Jesus came to preach to them, read from Isaiah chapter 61, and then said, he rolled up his scroll, look at verse 20, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And then later he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He says he's the one who's been longed for to come to bring good news. In what way? Look at verse 18, there in the middle. He would come to bring the good news through proclamation, to proclaim the Lord's favor. Now, I think you and I look at this text, chapter 4 of Luke, this, this cross-reference back to Isaiah chapter 61. You and I often look at the direct objects of this text or or the nouns of this text. You know, who are the poor? What does it mean to be a captive? What does it look like to be blind? Who are the oppressed? And we overlook actually the very mission of the messenger here. It doesn't strike us how important it is that God the Father has sent on a mission a divine preacher. And then that preacher comes, 
he reads that passage about him, and then he sits down, and he says, I'm it. In Luke chapter 9, it's amazing how Jesus is presented toward people around him. Here, you've got that case in Luke chapter 4, but in Luke chapter 9, maybe just, maybe just turn over. We won't read there in its fullness, but maybe just to put your eyes on the page so it becomes familiar with you. This is, this is the amazing account of the transfiguration, something that, something that dazzles our mind. People are often confused at what in the world is happening at this transfiguration. Some disciples follow Jesus up to a certain place, and then boom, all of a sudden, Jesus' clothes become dazzling white. <laughs> Would love to be there. And then all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah appeared. And the three, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, were seen as talking to each other. These prophets of old would have been dead, but all of a sudden they appear, Jesus' clothes are dazzling, and they're talking to one another. Now in brief, all of a sudden, you had these three men being seen by a few disciples with a voice from heaven. You see there in the text it says, all of a sudden this voice from heaven, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And then it's recorded that Moses and Elijah in an instant disappeared. Now what happens there? And why am I bringing it up here in Jesus' mission about being a preacher? What happens there? Well, in brief, Moses and Elijah represent, when they're together, the word of God being proclaimed, the word of God being preached. What did Moses do? He preached. What did Elijah do? He preached. Both preachers of God's word, both acting as prophets to God's people. And now, in a way, Jesus is shown as standing side by side with them, except now he is declared as the chosen preacher a true and better Moses, a true and better Elijah. You want the word of God? God says, listen to this man, the preacher that I have presented to you, God's chosen preacher. Isn't that something? This is so cool. Where it seems to be, what in the world is happening? This buildup in the book of Luke. Luke is the unfolding of all of God's truth in the Old Testament. And then he says, listen to them. Now focus on how this guy talks about everything. Jesus isn't one of the prophets. Jesus isn't one of the preachers. Jesus is the prophet that we ought to turn our attention to. Jesus is the preacher that God says we should listen to. I want you to see how this is a little bit different in some of our, I think, just interactions with other people. If you try to parallel things like what is being talked about here, how Jesus is the preeminent voice, the one through whom all truth and understanding is to be seen through. Notice how that's different than maybe our Mormon friends. You know, they have a, they have a different testimony. They, they see it's equal. They see it was imparted to them, yet there is no case where Jesus would ever interact with its truth. You see how just from there, they want a parallel, and then our God is actually telling us, encounter Christ as he bestows the scriptures to you. Or even our, our Hindu friends, not who would see not necessarily texts that would talk about God, but they would go to many different gods in all different directions, trying to, trying to pull down truths from all these different gods that they might worship. I was at a pizza joint a long time ago with one of my good friends. His name's Vavik, and he was going to go on this journey um, where he was going to go back to where his, his family heritage was from because he wanted to seek all the things that he could learn about God and the other gods. And I was like, Vevi, that's why I called him Vevi. Look, we have all of that in the Word. Everything we need to know about God is in His Word. And we can see that through the person of His Son. So even there, there's this comparison, His journey there, where we can go to Him and say, look at how God the Father actually talks about our interpretation of the Bible through His own Son. Or our non-religious friends. Maybe you're here and you're just like, I'm not religious, I'm not that, I'm not this. 
you often see Jesus mixed with competing or uh, commonly held alongside great philosophy, right, or good advice. It seems like Jesus is talking about good things, and it seems like these other people are talking about good things, so I'm just going to pick and choose. It's called syncretism. I'm going to pick and choose what really works for me, honest pursuit, right? Who doesn't do that every time we go to Lowe's? I'm just going to try to build a house that actually works for me, but you need to see that, that that pursuit of life is actually distracting from the glory of God in the middle. You don't have to look around in philosophy or in great advice from other people. You have all that God wants to give you in the very person of Christ as he himself is a preacher of what true truth is. I think it's also even needed to be presented to us as church people. We might think of this and go, ha, 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 we're not like the Mormons, or oh, we're not like, we're not like the Hindu friends, or we're not like even the non-religious. We have figured it all out. But I want you to see the important and necessary role of God's word being preached. It is designed to be in your life. Receiving the word isn't the only action to be done as a Christian, but it is central to communing with God. J.C. Ryle, the late Anglican bishop, says, let us never be moved by those who tear down the pulpit's purpose. Let us give to every part of God's public worship its proper place and honor, but by preaching Christ, it is the church of Christ which first gathered together and found it. And by preaching Christ, it is the church that is maintained in health and holiness. By preaching, sinners are awakened. By preaching, inquirers are led on, led on and brought in. By preaching, saints are built up. By preaching, Christianity is to be carried to the ends of the earth. What he's basically saying is by preaching, Christ proclaimed the kingdom is here through his announcement, through his sermon, through his instruction all around him. And it's exclusive. Jesus' mission was to preach. And when you see the words of God, whether in the Old Testament or New Testament, Jesus is the one through whom you should interpret the words of Moses and Elijah and Paul and Peter. He is the one who bestows truth on us. God incarnate comes to us, not only showcasing who he is, but also calling out, listen to me as I give you the very words of God. Now in our passage context, all the way back to Mark, I ask you to go, the cross of Jesus you see in chapter 1, doesn't come until Mark chapter 15. And in between those two chapters is a whole lot of what? Jesus' teaching, Jesus' instruction, his sermons. It's a whole lot of him talking. Sometimes it's done in dialogical and short form. Sometimes it's done in long-form sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes it's by question and answer. But it's his mission, where the priority of his ministry was to preach the gospel to the lost so that through him, they might have everlasting life. So when you think of Christmas, I hope that you do, amongst all the other glorious things that Christmas brings us, I do hope that you center your life around what did God in Christ actually say to us. Now, some of us will downplay his preaching and teaching and say, we have his teaching, we get it, but we really need to focus ourselves by living out his works. Alongside his words here is, his desire to go out and exercise demons out of people. So people want to focus on, we, we've got his teaching, and that's great, but what we really need to focus on, what the church really needs to focus on, are things like exorcisms or miracles or feeding of the hungry or clothing the poor, on and on. And those things are certainly there, and they need to be understood. But, but the purpose, I want, you to, I want you to get this, the purpose of the supernatural happening around all of Jesus and through all of Jesus was actually to give credibility to the very words that he would say. 
He would want to say something and back it up with an illustration. He would want to talk about giving sight to the blind and then say, it literally looks like this. Or talking about how God comes for the poor in heart and then say, is it, is it not enough for us to just look at poor people? We should serve them. Is that not what God does? So all of these things that seem uh, illustrative in what Jesus does, they, they are centering themselves when you look at the context of his sermons and these supernatural additives that are around it or through it. All of those things are giving credibility to what his words actually say in flesh and blood, in living color, as he preaches on heaven and hell and forgiveness, and faith. He's saying, this is, this is what my words look like, but obey my words. So he's not exclusively a preacher. He's also an active, godly, God-giving man. But he is, importantly, a preacher. He is and was a preacher, and he is what you and I need to heed from his words. We need his instruction. You and I need his explanation. I Throw an eternal fit when people say, you know, I've had a lot of instruction a lot of my life, and now I'm just kind of more in the application stage. And I'm like, I, that, I, I get what you're saying, but no, no. What fuels your application? Instruction from God. We need what he says about who he is. We need his proclamation. We're never done learning. We're never done being discipled. We're never done being trained to the point where we don't need his supernatural, powerful voice through his word. And so what Jesus' mission does is comfort our hearts. His message confronts the sin in our lives, the the sinful nature of our hearts, the the need for God's Spirit to guide us. So friend, know that Jesus didn't come and simply provide a good example. He wasn't just a quiet instructor, but he spoke. He preached. He taught. Jesus came, the Word in flesh, to tell you that he is the Word in flesh. Now, A question that you might ask yourself, and I promise the other two points are not as long as this one, but a question that you may ask yourself is, what do we need today? And there are things that change in your life that that try to pull your heart away from what you really need. You might be asked the question, what do you need today? You know, as things politically change from time to time, things economically change from time to time, your family makeup changes from time to time. What you need today is different than what you needed five years ago. Things seem to change, or this or that is removed, or that is enhanced. Basically, comforts are increased, or you might want trials to be decreased. But what we really need, and what Jesus said, is what we really need is more of his word coming to our hearts. That's what we need. Friends, listen to Jesus as a preacher. Know what he says about himself, about you, about your heart, about his offering through his words. Know his mission, the good news being preached. So understand his mission was to preach. But secondly, briefly, I want you to see the manner by which he preaches. How does Jesus preach? There are so many books. For The target is for people like me. Preach like Jesus preached. Preach like Paul preached. Preach like Moses preached. How did Jesus preach? Well, Jesus was very different than everyone else around him. What was the manner of Jesus' preaching? Jesus' preaching was authoritative. He preached with authority. Look at verses 21 through 22 of Mark chapter 1. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. His manner here is contrasted with the scribes. It's one with authority. Scribes were 
teachers in the synagogues, and, and they did some really good things within the synagogues. They taught people to memorize parts of the Bible, a great habit. They were in charge of keeping faithful copies of God's Word, great habit, all good. But over time, they were also infamous with a different teaching style, not with one authority from the Word, but actually one with authority from other people. Over time, they were infamous by their changing style, by being more reflective, more personal, giving more life advice. They would say things like, Rabbi so-and-so says this, in the recorded works that we have of them, Rabbi Rabbi so-and-so pontificated about this, or he brings this perspective into the midst of how we should see the word, and, and that's basically as far as it went. They just basically talked about what their friends and other rabbis talked about rather than just exposing or expositing the very word before their people's ears. And what they do is they would rehearse what other rabbis said, and the bulk of their lessons became tradition or advice from others instead of exposition of the word itself. And so the issue of their messages, it had no authority, regardless of what their physical or emotional style would have been like. It had no authority because it had no foundation. It wasn't based on the word. It was just based on maybe this great phrase that this other guy said. You can see how this could be taken to a limitless uh, horrible thing. It was just their hot take, or it was just someone else's hot take. Now, I do want to speak just briefly because our church is blessed to have a lot of young people. Our church is blessed to have a lot of military people. Military people, we really do hope that you will go away someday. Right? That's, part of your, that's part of your travels. You're here for a couple of years, and then we want you to go on. And so the admonition from the Lord in this text is that you would go on and submit yourself to actual preaching of Christ's very words, to not get caught up in the frivolous things or life advice or cool places that really just speak to you as a, as a young mom or as an older dad or whatever. Man, it's just really great. And getting Hear the words of Christ and let that be the foundation for your worship of Him. Or those of you who are younger, we hope that you grow up and you graduate and to some degree go away. When you do go away to other places, join yourself in a partnership with other churches that do nothing else but proclaim Christ's words to you. Whether it's the cool church or the boring church or the meh church, we all know they're out there, right? But find yourself in the church that preaches Christ. Diatribe over. All right, so Jesus' authority, Jesus' teaching has authority. And part of that, the reason why he is different than me or radio preachers or even other good guys in the text in the New Testament, the reason why Jesus is different is because he is God himself. So when he speaks... That is God speaking. When he says, you've heard it say, but I tell you, that's God speaking. When he's interpreting these things in the Old Testament, unveiling them to our eyes in the Sermon on the Mount, that's God speaking to you. When he tells you to listen to these other people, we should listen to these other people. He is God, and he's called the word of God, and his words were and are God's words. Now, interestingly, God's preachers before Jesus had a certain manner in showcasing their words as authoritative. It's helpful for us. They'd start out with, thus saith the Lord. Jesus never did that. Isn't that amazing? He never did that. Never copied them. He just spoke. Blessed are. Here's who's in. Here's how you know that you're mine. This will happen. On and on. With absolute authority, his word goes out. Now, now one thing I want you to grasp about Jesus' manner of preaching is that you cannot pick and choose God's word from 
or you cannot pick and choose bits and parts of Jesus' teaching or other scriptures uh, for your own life. This is, this is not a case of an a la carte or a buffet where you can take what you want and leave the rest. What Jesus most clearly shows in all of his teaching is that from the beginning of the end of the scriptures that you and I have, these are the very words of God. So we should consume them and take all of them. Do not be like those who consider themselves red-letter Christians where we go, ah, Paul said a lot of gruff stuff. Leviticus seems really weird. I just want to focus on Jesus's words. If we just focus on Jesus's words, then we'll find ourselves in the right place. Notice that Jesus quotes from the old and inspires the new. It may sound really cute and religious to say, I just want to focus on Jesus' words. Then friend, actually do that. Open Genesis 1 and start reading out loud where it says, God created the heavens and the earth. And how is that done? Through the second person of the Trinity, even though it's in black. All right, so I got really fired up there. Jesus is the preacher of God, and we should take all of it as much as possible. He's authoritative in your faith and in your spirituality. Now, I want to, final, I want to finish with a couple of words about Jesus' message. We have his mission, we have his manner, but I want us to understand what was Jesus' message. It is not explicitly clear in this text, but it is explicitly clear all throughout the rest of his teaching. The message that Jesus came to preach was the gospel. The message that Jesus came to preach, what was he talking about? He was talking about the gospel. Look again at verses 14 through 15 of Mark chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, here are four phrases, proclaiming the gospel, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. These four phrases is wonderfully a summary of Jesus' teaching as a whole. He proclaims the gospel of God. He proclaims the kingdom of God, saying it's at hand. He even gives instruction to those who would who would seek the kingdom of God, he tells them to repent and believe the gospel. Now, for you, if you don't know, the word gospel literally means good news. So this is why people talk about the good news of Jesus. Maybe you've been invited to a good news club, like I was when I was a little kid. The the talking of the good news, that's basically other Christians saying the gospel in layman terms. It's the good news of salvation that God, think of it, God has given by the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. God has given and offer to you new life. When you consider the gospel, I want you to consider the the focal point or the object of that message, the very person of Christ Jesus. It is his message that it is fulfilled in his arrival. It is his message that his entrance into the world for a particular mission was for saving people. It was his message that he came to seek and to save what is called the lost. And when the Bible talks about lost people, we're not like wandering around in the desert. What the scriptures say, people who are lost, meaning they are not in relationship with God. His message is that he has come to save and will do so by dying. It's a summary of what he has done, this passage that's given to us. But to grasp the gospel, know that We need to know the totality of not only what Jesus said, not only what Jesus did, but also who Jesus was in full. Know that Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary, his mother. She was a virgin in fulfilling the Old Testament's demands. He was born under the law, the scriptures say, and he was obedient at every point in life. He was a sinless person, preaching, speaking, healing, loving, so that he was perfect, so that in your and my disobedience, in our sin, Christ would actually live a certain way on account or in the place 
of our own sin. He took the punishment of your sin through his sinlessness. And after living a sinless life, he went to a cross or was delivered to a cross. Both he went there and was delivered there, but he went to a cross, which is where they massacred those who they hated the most, where he there suffered the curse of the law, meaning the sin of the people because of their own law-breaking. And on the cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, was actually made to be sin by God. You can look up a theological term later, imputation of Christ, where all of our sins were imputed on him so that all of his glory and righteousness would be imputed within us. All the sins of those who would ever believe him were transferred to him. As he hung there on the cross, the visual of Christ on the cross is him bearing the wrath of God because of your sin. And Jesus propitiated, or what is used in a thesaurus as pacified, the righteous anger of God. Jesus pacified by taking on the wrath of God. He pacified the righteous anger of God, and by this he reconciled sinful men to a holy God by his death. The Bible says that Jesus redeemed us. He bought us out of what's called slavery to sin. And all of this was accomplished by what's deemed his substitutionary death in our place. On that cross, when he said it's finished, or another way to translate that is it's paid in full. And he paid in full of the debt of those who would believe by his own death. So from the cross, though, it was not done on Jesus' account for him coming on the cross. He was taken down and then again buried in a tomb. But on the third day, he was raised from the dead, showcasing and validating that the death he died was actually a sufficient payment for our sins accepted by the Father. There is no need for you to still have Jesus on the cross and maybe you're in a nativity scene. He's no longer there. It was paid in full. He's no longer in the tomb. And all of this was accomplished for the sake of those who he came for. The Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved from their sins, from the wrath that comes for sin. And to call upon the name of Jesus is to look away from yourself, to look away from your religion, to look away from your church, to look away from your denomination, to look away from your baptism and your church membership and all your good works, to look to him exclusively as your Lord, as the one who can save you and the only one who will save you. He says, him who comes unto me, I will no wise cast out. So friends, Jesus' mission was to save sinners. He came not for the righteous, but he came for the unrighteous, which is great news, because who amongst us is righteous on our own? He is what's called the good physician. He came, to, he came not to do well with those who are sick, but to save those who are sick. So the call for us from this text is for all of us to consider how we actually see the arrival of Jesus, the preacher. Will we respond to his call? Will you this moment, if you don't, haven't responded to the call, will you this moment recognize that you are a sinner separated by God's sin and call out for yourself to the Lord to save you from your sin. Take, take the gravity and the weight of what your sins deserve and recognize what God has done for sinners who call out to him. Say to him that you're a wretched sinner. Ask him to forgive you by his grace. Plead with him to forgive you of your sins, to rescue you from where you belong. And at this moment, as an act of your own will, respond to his call and commit all that you are to him. Friends, the message that Jesus went out from area to area and town to town was the announcement that God incarnate is here and wants to bring you to himself. And if you call upon his name, 
you will, by the authority of God's word, Jesus' word, be saved, where he'll wash away every sin in your heart. You'll be clean and pure from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, and he will clothe you with perfect garments of his righteousness. And as God looks upon you, there will be a covering of your own sin. He'll be the only perfect righteousness that the only perfect righteousness righteousness that'll be seen will those will be those of Jesus Christ wrapped around you entirely. The gospel, the good news, is the unearned offer, the free offer of salvation to those to be saved through the work of Christ, to those who have no ability, no value, and I'm just talking about all of us here. Those on our own, what do we bring to the table? Only our sin. And what is Christ offered to do that? Wipe the plate clean and give you a great feast. So friends, to close, Merry Christmas. See how Christ came. He came triumphantly, and he came to preach the good news. His mission was to preach to God's people with authority for them and respond and have them respond to God's good offer of a new life. I pray that this time in this season will be our response of that glory. Let's pray. Gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you of what your word says about you. And we thank you of what your word says about us, how we can be turned from what it says about us to what it says about you. Oh God, we pray now as we approach your table and dine again with you, we ask that you would remind us of your great love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, on the night that on the night before Jesus was crucified, he ate dinner with his disciples and friends. And as they were eating, he gave them what we see today as a glorious picture of the gospel, a sign of the gospel. What Jesus did at what we call the Last Supper, or maybe you've heard of as communion, was he took bread and he took wine. And he divided the bread and he passed around the wine just like you would at a normal meal. And he said that all of his disciples should eat of it. And they should see it as a sign. They should see it as a memorial or as a sign of his body and his blood, as it would be later given over to them. You can imagine the the thoughts in their minds, like, I don't really know what you're talking about. But also on this side of the cross, uh, remind yourself of what we can remember of Christ offering his body, offering his blood for us. We believe that Christians should regularly observe the Lord's Supper because it points to Christ's death. So if you're here and you're not used to church, what's about to happen is people are going to get up go to different stations, take back elements of bread and elements of juice, and we're going to take them together. So it may look strange, but it's what God has called us to do on a regular basis so that we can refocus and remind ourselves of the glory of his death for us. Because it was at his death that he was killed for us. It was at his death that his blood was shed for us, assuring salvation for believers. Now, Christians are, unre- or Christians are repentant sinners, Christians are people who regularly go to the Lord and say, forgive me and make me what you aim for me to be. So if you're here and you know that you are sinful, you know that you are unworthy in and of yourself, in Christ, you need to remember that this is a meal for you. So don't sheepishly walk up to the table. You've heard me say before, this isn't a funeral. This is a banquet, right, where we can take boldly because of what Christ has done for us. Now, Paul says that we should examine ourselves. So maybe in the moments that you're walking up or maybe before you even leave, you might want to confess your sins to the Lord so that you can take the elements with confidence in the forgiveness that God gives you in your sins. Now, if you're here and you're not a believer, I want to, I want to ask you not to partake of what other people will partake. 
Uh, because of the significance of this act, this act, and don't take this the wrong way, but this act is for us. This act is for those who are in Christ. Instead, I want you to use this time to consider the gospel you've heard and the claims of Christ you may have heard from other people. And we'd love to talk to you about it later, but we hope that this will, that this will serve as an opportunity for this to pass over you. But we want to encourage you to, to listen and to see what others are doing around you. Now, for those of you who do profess to be believers, but your life is marked with unrepentant sin, the warnings of 1 Corinthians are especially directed towards you. Not just in how we receive it, joyfully, but why we receive it and our posture in receiving it. I want to encourage you, if you are in unrepentant sin, I want to encourage you to hear the warnings of Scripture and not participate today. I want you to humble yourself before the Lord and repent of your sin, even using this process of not joining us to spur you into repentance. Now, I'm going to pray, and then when I'm done praying, music, right? Music is going to happen. During that time, <laughs> I, should, I really should know this. Uh, during that time, there are, there are tables all around the room, up in the balcony. Uh, come to this on your own. Take both back, and we'll take them all together. If you don't want to get up for whatever reason, maybe you're holding a baby, you don't want to be around people, whatever, one of our deacons will come down, just raise your hand, they'll bring it to you. But let me pray, and then let's go to the Lord's table and enjoy with great anticipation.